Well, good morning. My name is Adam. If uh, we haven't met, it's great to have you with us, whether you're in the building, joining us online, whether you came in your car today or your boat, we're just glad to have you with us. A little bit wet in Queensland at the moment. Now, I'm sure you've noticed that we are in the middle of an election campaign. Now, some of you might be feeling a little bit nervous. The pastor's going to talk about politics. It's okay, just breathe. Now, if the ads on TV haven't given it away, then the signs all around the place certainly have. My kids love those signs. Every time we get in the car, it's a game of spot the sign. Red sign, blue sign. Uh, The last I checked, one's voting red, the other's voting blue. So there you go. They're pretty bipartisan. Now, an election means lots of things, not many of them pleasant or enjoyable. More ads on TV, more bickering on social media more pamphlets in your mailbox. But there's one thing in particular that you can be certain to experience whenever there is an election. This one thing is a part of every election campaign. And it's this, promises. Every politician from every political party will make promises. If you, do, if you vote for us, we will do this. Or if you vote for us, we won't do that. Every election campaign is marked by promises. Now, whether those promises are kept or not is another matter that you can be certain to hear lots of promises. Now, I, I don't want to compare God to a politician, but the truth is God also makes promises. In fact, the whole story of the Bible is really the story of God's promises. Here's the way one writer named Carl Lafferton puts it. He's written a little book called Promises Kept, the whole story of the Bible. He says, God is a promise-making God. Throughout history, he has made huge, extravagant, wonderful promises to humanity. Crucially, God is also a promise-keeping God. What he says, he does. The good news is that God's promises are promises kept. God keeps all of his promises. And today, we are looking at what are undoubtedly some of the most significant promises in the Bible. I mean, these promises given to Abraham in Genesis 12, they set the agenda for the rest of the Bible. They are a sneak peek into the rest of the Bible. If we don't understand these promises given to Abraham in Genesis 12, we won't properly understand the rest of the Bible. They really are that significant. Now, we're in a a series at the moment called The Bible, a story that makes sense of life. What we're doing is we are looking at the big picture of the Bible, the, the story of how the Bible fits together and how it makes sense of our lives. Now, so far, we've looked at the beginning of the story, the account of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, which answers really significant questions for us. Who are we? Why are we here? Last week, we looked at the fall. The fall of humanity into sin in Genesis 3, which gives answers to those questions. Well, what's gone wrong with us? What's gone wrong with our world? Today, we come to the third movement in the storyline of the Bible, the third significant landmark. Today, we come to God's response to human sin and evil. Today, we, we come to see the beginning of God's rescue plan to set all things right again. And it all begins with just a few promises. Now, to catch us up to where we pick up the story in Genesis 12, let me just give you a brief 
um, overview of what happens between Genesis 3 and Genesis 12. Because after Adam and Eve are banished from the garden, the, the story of humanity descends into deeper darkness. I mean, it begins in the very next chapter with murder. Cain kills his brother, Abel. Now, you might have thought about doing that at some points in your life. Cain actually did it. You see, the stain of sin begins to spread. The wickedness of humanity becomes overwhelming, and so it leads to an act of God's judgment. God floods the earth. He basically hits the refresh button and starts again. But it preserves Noah's family through the flood, which means human history continues, but sadly, so too does human sin. The earth has been given a wash, but the human heart has not been changed. And so human rebellion continues. And it leads to humanity trying to take matters into their own hands, trying to reach God through their own efforts. They build a, a tower that, try, that they try to reach heaven. But God confuses their language, he frustrates their efforts, and it leads to humankind divided from God and divided from one another. If we're to summarize the story, human beings are no longer God's people by nature. We no longer live in God's place, and we're no longer under God's rule and blessing. And that, so we come to the question today, well, what is God going to do? What is going to be God's response to human sin and evil and rebellion? And this is what we discover here in Genesis 12. I mean, this chapter is really a hinge moment in the storyline of the Bible. The story takes an important new direction, and there's an important shift in emphasis. See, so far, the story has been told on a cosmic scale. The creation and the corruption of everything, a worldwide flood, a global scattering. The lens has been zoomed right out. But today, the story begins to focus on a particular person in a particular place. The lens zooms in on Abraham, a Middle Eastern shepherd. Now, most of us are probably familiar with Abraham. If you grew up in church and I was to sing, Father Abraham... There you go. Even if you didn't grow up in church and you think the rest of us are all really weird, you've probably still heard about Abraham. He is an incredibly significant character in the storyline of the Bible. And these promises that God gives to Abraham are incredibly significant. Here's what John Stott, the, the late great British preacher, said about these promises in Genesis 12. He said, It may truly be said, without exaggeration, that not only the rest of the Old Testament, but the whole of the New Testament are an outworking of these promises of God. These promises are incredibly significant. And today we're going to have a look at what they have to say to us, how they fit into the storyline of the Bible and what they mean for our lives. And we're going to explore these promises under three headings. Firstly, God's audacious promises, Abraham's unlikely response, and then God's costly grace. So let's begin with God's audacious promises. Now I discovered this week that there is such a thing as a three-ingredient cookbook. Didn't know they existed, but Emma assures me they've been around for a long time. Basically, all these kinds of recipes which require only three ingredients. Now you might think that that sounds pretty bland, but I think that sounds pretty cool. Not only is it, you know, easy to make, but some of my favorite meals only have three ingredients. Steak, chips, and beer. <laughs> Eggs, bacon, and coffee. Sounds great. Well, God's plan 
to reverse the curse, to bring blessing to the world, it also has three main ingredients. We see it in the promises that God gives to Abraham. The first ingredient is land. This is what God says to Abraham in verse 1 of chapter 12. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. So God comes to Abraham and he says, leave your homeland and follow me and go to this promised land. Now, of course, we know that this land is the land of Canaan, the promised land, which is modern day Israel. The second ingredient in God's plan is people. God says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. God will give Abraham many descendants and Abraham's descendants will be God's own people. And Abraham's descendants will be God's people forever. Here's what God says later to Abraham in chapter 17. He says, I will establish my covenant, my binding relationship with you, Abraham, and your descendants as an everlasting covenant. Abraham's people will be God's people forever. The third ingredient is blessing. Land, people, and blessing. And this third ingredient is probably the key ingredient. I mean, the word bless or blessing is repeated five times in just these few short verses. God is saying to Abraham, I will bless you and I will bless your descendants. And not just for the sake of Abraham, but actually for the sake of the whole world. That's what God says to Abraham there in verse 3. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now think about how incredible this is. Over 4,000 years ago, God said to a nomadic Middle Eastern shepherd, I am going to bless the whole world through you. Now, what is God saying here? What is God promising? What, what blessing is God talking about? Well, ever since the fall of humanity in Genesis 3, we've been under a curse, the curse of sin and judgment. But God is saying to Abraham, through your family line, I will reverse the curse. I will rescue you from sin and judgment. I will bring blessing. You see, my people are no longer in my place under my rule and blessing, but I'm going to fix that. Through your line, Abraham, my people will once again come live in my place and they will live under my rule and experience my blessing. Now, how is this going to happen? How is God going to bring about this blessing? Well, the answer is through the promised Savior. Remember the serpent crusher that was promised in Genesis 3, verse 15, the one who would come and crush the head of the serpent and have his heel bruised in the process? Now we know, thanks to this promise given to Abraham, to look for this saviour from within the family of Abraham, from the line of Abraham. And this is why attentive Bible readers, they will sit up and take note when Matthew begins his gospel in this way. When he says, this is the the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You see, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of these promises. They were partially fulfilled in the nation of Israel and in the land of Canaan, but they are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ and in the church. See, these promises are a little bit like the Russian dolls, the babushkas, you know, where you've got the doll and you open up and there's another one, another one, another one, and it goes on. Except these promises don't get smaller, they actually get bigger. See, as the storyline of the Bible unfolds, the promise of land becomes the new heavens and the new earth. The promise of people becomes the global, multi-ethnic church. And the promise of blessing is now restored relationship with God in Christ. 
This is what Paul talks about in a number of points in his letters, but especially in Galatians chapter 3. And here's what he says in verse 29. He says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants. If you belong to Christ, you are part of God's forever people. The promise that God made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. So the whole story of the Bible, the redemption of humanity, the restoration of the cosmos, they're captured in these promises that are given to Abraham. They're like seeds that will begin to grow as the Bible unfolds. And and so you can see why I've titled this section, God's Audacious Promises. I mean, this is the beginning of God's worldwide rescue mission. And it all begins with this man named Abraham. Now, you might be wondering, why Abraham? Why did God choose Abraham to begin his worldwide rescue mission? Why is Abraham the first one that God chose to be on his team? You know, do you remember in high school when it came time for team sports and the, the teacher would pick two people and they would have to choose from their classmates who would and wouldn't be on their team? What happened? The sporty, athletic people, they always got picked first and the, the less athletically gifted people always got picked last. And if I just brought up some traumatic memories for you, I apologize. It's, it's an efficient way to do it, but it's a pretty brutal way to do it as well. Now, is this why God chose Abraham? Did Abraham have some kind of special, unique talents and gifts and abilities? Not really. It's likely that Abraham did not even know about God. We, we learn in, in chapter 11 that Abraham was from a place called Ur, which is modern-day Iraq. Now, Ur was a prosperous city, but it was also a pagan city. It was the center of worship for the moon god, Ur-Namu. And this means Abraham was probably an idol worshiper, didn't know God and wasn't seeking God. Not only that, but we learn from chapter 11 that Abraham's wife, Sarah, was barren. They'd not been able to have any children. And it makes them unlikely candidates to be father and mother of a great nation. Not only that, but Abraham was getting on in life. I don't mean to offend any of our senior members, but Abraham was 75 years old at the time that God came to him. And so when God picked his first team member, he didn't go to the university to find them. He went to the retirement village. Who does God choose to begin his rescue mission? A nomadic, childless, idolatrous old man. Not the ideal candidate to start a a, a great nation. Not the type of person that you or I might choose. And yet, reveals such a profound truth that runs right through the Bible. A profound truth about how God works in the world. If I was to put it simply, I'd say God's invitation to Abraham, God's invitation to you and to me, It's not based on our goodness, it's based on his grace. If you don't hear anything else in this whole sermon, hear this. doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter where you've come from, doesn't matter how far you've drifted, doesn't matter if you've spent your whole life in church. God's invitation to you and to me, it's not based on our goodness, it's based on his sovereign grace. Here's the way that the Bible puts it in Ephesians chapter 1. It says, God chose us in him, in Christ, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. In other words, we are part of God's family in accordance with his pleasure and will. God's people are God's people, not because they chose him, but because he chose them. Not because they worked their way to God, but because God reached out to them and gathered them to himself. 
And this should produce two things in us. It should humble us into the dust. There is nothing that we can do to work our way to God. There's nothing we have to offer God. And it should lift us to the heavens. Because we are part of God's eternal plan. We are included in God's eternal family. And it's all a gift of God's amazing grace. So when God begins to choose his team, he doesn't do what we do. He doesn't pick the shiny, the the successful, the gifted. He picks the lost, the outsider, the unlikely. He picks a nomadic, childless, idolatrous old man. Now this does not mean that Abraham had no decision to make. That Abraham had nothing to do in response. I mean, when God said to him, go, Abraham could have said no. And, And you know, maybe we would have understood if Abraham responded in this way. These were pretty difficult promises for him to believe. To the childless man, God says, I will make you a great nation. To the nomadic man, God says, I will give you a secure land. And to the unknown man, God says, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. They're difficult promises to believe. And it leads us to our second point, which is Abraham's unlikely response. This is what we read in verse 4, very simply. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Abram chooses to trust God. It's a courageous and it's a costly decision. I mean, Abraham had to leave behind everything he'd ever known to go to a land he'd never seen based on the command of a God that he'd only just met. It's a courageous and costly decision. And friends, the truth is, this is always the case in the life of faith. God's call to us always has a disruptive element to it. I mean, this is why Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves take up their cross and follow me. When we start to follow Jesus, we stop living just for ourselves and we start living for him, no matter the cost. It's like a young man I heard about this week named David. David grew up in a very wealthy Hindu family, but at university he began to be exposed to the Bible and he began to read the Bible and he discovered the life and the freedom that is found in Jesus. Now when David announced that he'd become a Christian, his family disowned him and they removed him from the world. Despite this pain of rejection, David said, you can't put a price on the freedom I have in Jesus. And that's the freedom that Abraham is being invited into and is stepping into, the freedom of knowing and obeying and trusting God. Now, does this mean that Abraham and his family, they all lived happily ever after from this moment on? Did Sarah become pregnant the next night? Did they come to the promised land the next week? The answer is no. In fact, it would be 25 years, 25 years, before the promised child arrived. And throughout that time, Abraham's faith wavered. He experienced doubt and confusion. He had questions. He made some terrible decisions, tried to take matters into his own hands. But all throughout that journey, God remained faithful, kept reminding him of the promise, kept reassuring him that he would keep his promise. In fact, that's what we read in Genesis 15 in our second reading. It's been a number of years and Abraham is experiencing doubt. He's saying to God, God, am I going to die without an heir? Are you going to keep your word? And so God brings him outside and he he, he tells him to look up into the night sky, to look at the stars and to count them if he can. Remember, this is before electricity and lights, and so it would have been beautiful. And then God said to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. God reiterates his promise, even expands upon it. You have more descendants than stars in the sky. So Abraham's got a choice to make. Is he going to believe? Is he going to trust God? You're going to walk away. Verse 6. 
Abram believed the Lord and God credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God's promise and God counted him as righteous. God declared him to be righteous, reckoned him to be righteous. Why? Because of his faith in God and in God's promise. And this is what the whole Bible teaches us. The way to a right standing with God, the way to be made righteous before a holy God, it's by faith. And it's always been by faith. So the Old Testament is not about law keeping and the New Testament about grace and faith. The whole Bible tells us that the way to a right relationship with God is by faith in God's promises. The Old Testament prophet Habakkuk said, the righteous shall live by faith. The currency of our relationship to God is faith. And this is what Abraham shows us right from the very beginning. Now, what happened next for Abraham? Did he suddenly have total assurance? Did all of his questions and doubts go away in that moment? Just a couple of verses later, he has another question. And it leads us to our third scene, which is God's costly grace. You see, after reiterating the promise to give him land, Abraham says to God, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it, possession of the land? He's saying, God, how can I know that you will do this? How do I know that you won't give up on me, that you'll deliver what you've said? Maybe you've had questions like that before. God, how can I know that you really do love me? How can I know that you'll never leave me? How can I know that you'll keep your word to me? Well, God's answer to Abraham's question, it's an answer to our questions as well. And the answer that God gives is covenant. Now, we might not know what that word means because we don't use it very much, but it's a massive word in the Bible. A covenant is very simply a binding agreement. But it's deeper than that. It's a binding agreement motivated by love. So, for example, a marriage relationship is a covenant relationship. It's a binding relationship. When you, when you stand at the, the altar on your wedding day, you don't say, I will love you if you do X, Y, and Z, as long as you do X, Y, and Z. You say, I will love you for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. And this is the type of relationship that God has established with us. He has utterly and totally committed himself to us. And we see this in what happens next in the second half of chapter 15, which we didn't read. But basically, there is a strange ceremony that takes place. God tells Abraham to go and fetch a bunch of sacrificial animals. And Abraham cuts them in half, and then he places them side by side, kind of creating a corridor down the middle between them. And it's really strange to us. But it wasn't strange to ancient readers. They knew that this was a covenant ceremony, that this was how two parties would commit themselves to each other. See, the two parties to the agreement, they would walk down that aisle between the, the animals that had been cut in half. And it was a way of saying to the other party, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, may I be treated like these animals. It was a serious way to signify a serious promise. So like I suggested in the earlier service, maybe instead of flowers down the aisle at a wedding, we could kind of put some lamb or, or beef or something just an idea so Abraham he gets it all ready but then something really strange happens the sun goes down darkness descends and Abraham falls into a deep sleep and only God passes down the aisle between the animals signified by a flaming torch and a smoking pot 
and we're left asking, what's the big deal? What's the point? What is God saying here? And God is saying to Abraham, I'm going through for both of us. I'm taking responsibility for all of this. If I don't keep my promises, may I be cut off. But also, Abraham, if you don't keep your promises, may I be cut off. In other words, Abraham, I am so committed to bless you and to bless the world through you. I will do it even if it means I have to die. And don't you understand that that is exactly the story of the Bible? Because centuries later, darkness descended again. As Jesus Christ hung upon the cross, we read this in Mark's Gospel. At the sixth hour, darkness came upon the whole land. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22. You see, during his trial and crucifixion, Jesus' body was torn apart and his blood was shed for us. Why? Because God was faithful to his promises. Because God himself was bearing the cost of our covenant breaking. We broke the covenant, but Jesus' body is broken. We deserve to lose our lives, but Jesus is the one who gives his life. And this is God's costly grace. This is how deeply God is committed to his people and to his promises. This is how deeply God wants to bless the world. And this is the reason for our hope. I mean, in a world of broken promises and false hopes, how can we be sure that God will keep his word, that God is really for us, that God will come through for us? And the answer of the Bible is look to the cross. The cross shows you all that you need to know, shows you the depth of God's love and commitment. And this is why in Hebrews chapter 6, after talking about the promises given to Abraham and the way that Jesus fulfilled them, the writer says this, says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. I mean, let me ask you, where is your hope? Where is your hope for the future? Where is your hope in a, a world that can shake? Is it firm and is it secure? Or can it be taken away from you? And my encouragement to you today is this, which I think is the encouragement we get from the story of Abraham. Put your hope and your trust in God. The God who makes and keeps his promises. The God who walks down the aisle between the animals. The God who even walks to the cross. The God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. This God will graciously give us all things. This God invites us into his family, not based on our goodness, but based on his grace. This God will take hold of us, he'll never leave us, and he'll never let us go. And that is a promise that you can count on. Father, thank you that you make and you keep your promises. Thank you that you not only kept your word, but you even paid the price for our failure to keep our word. That you endured the cost, the penalty of our covenant breaking. That you went to the cross to die in our place for our sins, Jesus so that we might come 
into your family through sheer grace. Lord, however it is that we've walked in here today, whether we're wrestling with the reality of of unfulfilled hopes and expectations, whether we're doubting your goodness, God, help us to look to the promises that you make us. Help us to look to the cross of the Lord Jesus and help us to see that you are a God who is faithful, who will never leave us and never let us go. And let that fill our hearts with faith, faith. Help us to live our lives by faith, trusting you all the days of our life. And we pray this in Jesus' name.